Happy Monday and welcome to the second intro I have ever done for these podcasts. Uh, it's funny too, both are right before the semi-sports focused ones. So today's episode is with the notorious and wonderful Shea Serrano, who um, is maybe my like favorite Twitter follow of all time. Uh, I literally saw him tweeting about freelance work the other day. I was like, I think you do dope shit. I would love to talk to you on a podcast. And he just DMs me and says like, let's set it up. <laughs> and it happened this morning so uh it's really cool i had a blast and it it's it's awesome to talk to all these people that are like writing heroes which sounds nerdy but writing heroes to me uh so that is today uh next week will be nina freeman which i'm actually going to record tonight from fulbright she's awesome i'm super excited for that one and then it should be the return of steve burns right after that talk more about games criticism what he's up to now um what he thinks about the industry stuff like that and uh yeah from there still planning some stuff out have some cool guests lined up uh if you're listening to this right now on soundcloud and you're like why am i listening on soundcloud this is stupid i want to listen on my phone never fear there is uh there's there's my podcast on itunes so uh real quick just before you start listening please do me a huge favor find this on itunes subscribe and leave like a really quick review just say like this podcast doesn't suck five out of five it's like all i'm asking pretty much all of it that really just helps people find my podcast and I, I love doing this stuff i don't make any money off of it i just really appreciate that people appreciate it and get something out of it and today's episode with shay is super freelance heavy a lot more like the mechanics behind it and pitching and how he started and how he uh, actually structured his payment for certain freelance stuff and his uh kind of his his philosophy behind that uh again super, had a great time talking to him um so please just head to itunes leave a short review it would mean the world to me and uh, without further ado, let's get right into it. Here's Shay Serrano. Hello and welcome to episode 92 of the 1099 for the week of May 15th, 2017. I am your host, Josiah Renauden, and with me today is a staff writer at The Ringer, the New York Times bestselling author of The Rap Yearbook, the Shoot Your Shot King, and my number one overall draft pick if there was ever a draft for a best Twitter account, Shay Serrano. Shay, how are you doing today? What up, dude? I'm number 92? No, number one. I mean, this is your 92nd episode. Oh, oh yeah. I thought you meant 92 in the draft pick. Uh, no. No. Yeah, you're number 92. Obviously, I wanted to save you for 100. Uh, and we can hold this back if you want to. You could be a hundred, but I thought ninety-two no. was a good number for you too. I should have been number number one. I can't believe you went through ninety-one other people before you were like, "Well, I guess we'll do Shay now." See, I didn't. I didn't think you'd immediately say yes as soon as you did. I, you know, I didn't want to start off with like Shay at the start, then everyone would be like, "Why would I want to listen past episode one?" Right, right, right. See, I'm really thinking about the future here. Uh, okay. <laughs> the other day. And I was just talking about this with you off air. I saw you talk about your past freelance work, different rates you had talked about, uh, how you kind of all got started. And I thought this was the perfect opportunity to randomly tweet you and ask you to come on the show because you're now a staff writer at The Ringer doing cool stuff on a daily basis. But I know previously, unless Wikipedia is lying to me, you were a middle school science teacher for like eight or nine years. Is that right? That's correct. I did that for nine years. Uh, what made you realize, oh man, I can make a living, make, you know, make money 
doing this writing thing? Was it kind of something that came out of nowhere, or were you always hoping at some point to actually get paid to write for a living? No, it came out of nowhere. I, I didn't have any experience as a writer. I didn't even know that that was like a job that you could do. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I'd, I'd seen magazines before, and I just never thought about that or newspapers or whatever. Like, I didn't realize that that was a job. Anyway, mm. um, so no, it, it wasn't anything I'd ever considered. It just sort of happened by by accident. My my wife was a teacher as well. This was when I this was maybe like my first year of teaching or so, and she was teaching, and we were going to get married and have kids and whatever. This whole a, a whole bunch of crazy stuff happened with the pregnancy, to where she ended up being on bed rest mm. and she couldn't work for like f- a little over four months. And we needed money, you know. I mean, a, a teacher's salary is not very much. I think at the time I was making maybe forty-five thousand dollars a year. Oh, so my so my bi-weekly checks after taxes and insurance and union fees or whatever it was like twelve hundred, thirteen hundred bucks, something like that. Maybe eleven hundred in the beginning, somewhere between eleven and thirteen hundred bucks every two weeks. Mm. And that was, I mean, that just wasn't enough to pay for. We had a mortgage. We had a car note. We had my student loans and her student loans and cell phones. Like we had several thousand dollars in bills every month and the money that I was making wasn't going to cover it. So we needed an, um, more income during that time and <clears throat> I needed a job. And I, I, I had applied at places like Target or to be a waiter or a grocery store stocker. And it just never, they kept telling me they wouldn't, weren't going to hire me because I could only work certain hours or, yeah. you know, because I already full-time job. And so I went on like two or three interviews and that happened to me and I was like, man, fuck this shit. I'll figure something else out. Mm-hmm. And I was just Googling work from home jobs. And, uh, um, among that list, writer was one of them. So I was like, well, that'll, that'll be the one that I do. And there you go. How did you kind of figure out the pitching process from there? Because like you said, if you, if the, the whole writer thing didn't even seem like a real thing. Uh, before you, when you didn't have experience, like what was your mm-hmm. kind of schedule in terms of like, all right, I'm going to pitch these people, I'm going to send them this work. Did you have any work, previous work to even send them? <laughs> no, I, I didn't have anything, man. I'd never <laughs> done anything like that before. I didn't, I didn't even work at like the high school paper or what I barely took. I just took whatever the most basic English classes were in school to get through college. So, I mean, I knew, I knew there had to be a process. Everything has a process or a template. All I had to do was figure that part out. It's, it's honestly super intimidating in the very beginning, especially if you don't have, I didn't have any contacts. I didn't know any writers. I didn't know anything about anything. All I knew was this must be a thing that's happening. So let me figure it out. So I went and I grabbed a whole bunch of the like, the, we have an alt weekly in Houston. There's a, that paper. There's another, I think it's like a bi-weekly or a monthly. And then there are a whole bunch of little tiny neighborhood newspapers. So I just went through those guys first. I, I grabbed some of them and, and read through them to try to figure out what sort of stuff they were writing about so I can send them similar ideas. Um, so I, that's, that's where I started. Uh, I got, I, I bought this book. It was called Six Figure Freelance or something along those lines. Yeah. It was super dated and, and, and old and a lot of it was like, how to freelance in the nineties or some shit before the, before the internet was there. Yeah, it was really. like, you, you, you have to mail your, your clips to this place. And 
and do all that. But it did have some general stuff in there about, okay, you, you're going to have to find out who an editor is at a place. And then you're going to have to send them pitches. And then hit, this is generally what a pitch would look like. So I was trying to learn all of that stuff in the beginning. <clears throat> and that was what I spent a lot of, uh, a lot of my time on because nobody's emailing you back when you first start out. So I was just trying to get better at, at that part. And that probably took like a couple months to figure out as I was chipping away at these little tiny neighborhood newspapers. I, I was able to talk, a uh, one of them into letting me write about like a high school football and then another one, high school basketball and whatever. Like that's just, that's how you get in the game, man. Yeah. And I, I'd read a similar book. I think it was a little bit more modern, but similar in terms of like, you know, here's how you structure a pitch. You need to make sure you understand the publication before <clears throat> even attempting to send anything their way. But I mean, since that time you've written for GQ Rolling Stone, MTV, Vice, at what point did you kind of have the confidence, because so much of freelancing is just being confident in terms of your pitching and your writing, at what point did you feel like, I can do this shit, like I can pitch to GQ, I can talk to these people and not just go like local newspapers? I started out from the very beginning, which was probably a mistake, because <laughs> I, I, you just don't know any better. It's one of them situations where you watch a basketball game and some rookie's out there in a, in a very high-stakes game and he's just chunking up shots because he doesn't understand how big that moment is. It was a similar situation for me where I just didn't know, like, oh, I know Rolling Stone or I know the New York Times. Let me pitch them. I didn't understand, like, that's the top, top level. I was just doing it. So they, they never let me write for them in the beginning. I only even got an email back a couple of times just to tell me no. Um, but I remember I did get an email from, I pitched Rolling Stone. This was like literally the second month of me working there. And I read a story about some, uh, it was like <clears throat> some goth or emo kids in Mexico got beat up for whatever reason. And so I, I, I knew that Rolling Stone had a newsy section in the front of their magazine. Yeah. And then also they were doing stuff on the website. So I just sent an email like, hey, this happened. Can I write about it for y'all with this sort of angle? And then they emailed me back and I freaked out. And the guy was like, you know, do you live in Mexico? Because that's where it happened. And I responded back, oh, no, I don't live in Mexico. It's like, oh, do you have some contacts on there? Like, did this happen to somebody you know? And I go, oh, no, I don't know. I don't I don't know who it happened to. And he, like every question he asked me, I didn't know or have the answer to. It was just a total disaster. And then I never heard back from him ever again. And uh, <coughs> But, yeah, it started from the beginning. And, and maybe like after a few weeks of never hearing back or – Never hearing a yes is when I started to just focus on the smaller ones because that's where, that's where I was getting the emails back. So there you go. When you first started freelancing, were you, was this during like when you were active on Twitter? Because right now, it, it's weird to say, but actually having like an actor, active Twitter presence means a lot when you're a freelancer because you need to get your name out there. You need to get your, you know, quote unquote brand out there. Uh, uh -huh. Did you actually have any times where your Twitter presence, anything you said, led to work or maybe even you meeting someone who you looked up to or never thought you talked to because again you when you're tweeting so much about basketball you have these thoughts that might not immediately seem like they'd form into a feature but on the ringer it seems like a lot of it starts that way where you have these ideas and eventually it becomes a fully fleshed out feature no i didn't have twitter in the beginning i mean this was 2008 maybe okay. it, like it wasn't a big thing i think it was around but it wasn't what it is now um, I, and I even remember going to lunch with a couple of other writers and they were asking why I wasn't on Twitter. And I was like, man, fuck that Twitter bullshit. I don't want to do that. That's not a, a thing I'm interested in. Um, <clears throat> but no, in the beginning, 
I didn't I didn't have any of that. I was just on my own figuring that shit out. Uh, but you do bring up an interesting point about using Twitter now to like get people to know your name, which that's a that's a very slick little trick mm-hmm. if you can pull it off. Because if you send an email to somebody and they don't know your name or who you are, you have a much uh, worse shot of getting a response back than if they do know your name. Even if they don't know who you are, but if they recognize your name for whatever reason. And I sort of, I, I figured that out pretty quick because it was the same way. Like if, if I had a 200 emails in my inbox, but I've got one, uh, from you, from Joe, like I know your name, then I'm going to open that one. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So. My trick when I first started was I wanted to write for the Houston Press, which was the which is the the alt weekly here in Houston. They're like our LA Weekly or, or our Village Voice. It's all the same paper. I wanted to write there, but I didn't know anybody at the place, and I couldn't get anybody to respond back to me. So what I started doing was anytime I figured out who the editor was, this guy named Chris Gray, and anytime he wrote something for the website or for the <coughs> for the paper, if he wrote a blog, I just made sure to leave a comment on there. And it wasn't just like, a, oh, great job type comment. It was a few sentences, a paragraph, so that he could see that I read the thing and sort of processed the thing. Mm-hmm. And I did that for like three weeks, two or three weeks. Every time a thing went up, I left a comment on there. And my username was Shea Serrano. And I always, you know, I didn't have like some weird thing going on. Um, but I did just kept doing that over and over and over again for like two or three weeks. And then after that, after I felt like I'd done it enough times, so then I emailed them. And he responded back. And and that was the email I got back. He was like, oh, you're the guy who's been commenting <laughs> on this stuff. Because everybody reads their, the comments and their, their uh, you know, when you write a thing, especially if it's not getting a lot. If you always get like four comments and one of them is the same guy, you just immediately recognize that. Yeah. So I did that. And the first time I emailed him, it was just to be like, oh, hey, I've been, you know, just wanted to let you know I saw this thing you wrote and I thought it was cool. And here's how I felt about it or whatever. And then after, that's how it started. And then I started pitching them after that. And I got a, it was much easier to uh, get an email back. Um, but yeah, you just need to get, uh, when you're first starting out, you need to get an editor to know your name. And then you got a better shot. So that was one of the ways that I did it. Uh, when you are on Twitter, like, is it, it, it's always weird to say, like, hey, what are Twitter tips for people to actually get noticed? Because, you know, there's some writers out there who maybe don't use it that much and should more. But for you, was it always just like, I'm going to be myself and just talk about the stuff I care about in the way I always have? Like, was there an art to what you're doing, which sounds insane, almost like a wrestler who's dialing up the personality to 11? Or is your Twitter just Shea Serrano? No, I just try to keep it as as normal as possible. Um and I think most people, you figure out pretty quick, oh, this guy's putting on an actor. Yeah. Oh, this lady is just being like this for whatever reason. Like you, that's easy to see when that happens. So no, I never did anything like that. I still don't do anything like that. I just, yeah, I only go on there to like talk about the stuff I'm interested in or ask a question about something I'm interested in and, and just keep it moving. Uh, speaking of your Twitter, I think it was a couple days ago that you had tweeted something to the effect of fuck writing for free, which is of yeah. course something I, I want to talk about because it's a weird topic when when you were in your situation when you were a teacher and you had these bills piling up. I mean, you now have three kids. Is that correct? We had two at the time. Now okay. I have three. Yeah, Two at the time. So you can't <laughs> you don't have the time to spend, you know, put all this effort into writing and then get nothing back and just say like, oh, it's good experience and exposure. Uh, when I was starting, I was like 15. And I was, I was writing for free because I thought I sucked and I did. 
and I didn't really know how to get better without just like throwing myself out there. And I didn't think I was writing well enough to earn money. Um, but now I, I think I agree with you more where it's insane, especially to write for semi-major publications and just get that, you know, this is for exposure bullshit. So for mm-hmm. you, is there any time where it makes sense to work to write for free? Or do you think it, whenever you're actually writing for an editor, there should be some sort of monetary compensation? Nah, yeah, fuck that bullshit. You should be getting, <laughs> you should be getting paid. And if, if a place won't pay you, then it's because they don't think you're valuable. It's the only reason they won't pay you. If they don't think you're valuable, then you don't get any money. And if they do, then you do. That's just the way that it is. So if you're writing for a place for free, then that's that's why. And don't do that shit. Even if, I like, I never got the whole, you know, you can write for us for exposure. exposure. Like, when's the last time you saw a thing and were like, oh, wow, that was a great story by this person who I've never heard of. Like, I care about this person. Like, it just doesn't work like yeah. like that. Um if you maybe if it was a a spot like if the New York Times said, "Hey, do you want to write an op-ed for us about whatever?" Then sure, go for it. Then because then you get to say, "I wrote for the New York Times," but that never ever happens, and it's it's just stupid to pretend like writing for free is a thing that you should do. And and you know, I remember I got into a conversation like this before with some other guy, and. uh he was talking about, oh, you've got to do what it takes to get in. And like, I would write, I, I would work for six months for free at a place just to prove. And, and I'm oh, like, that's, Jesus. that's great. Like, that's cool that some people live that life where you cannot get paid for six months. That's really cool. And I'm very happy that that's the life you live. But I didn't grow up like that. And most of the people that I came up with or that I know right now, you can't just sur- we don't have it set up to where we cannot get paid for that long. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, totally. Most people, most people aren't in that situation. Most people got a parent or two who are fucking busting their ass just to pay their bills. And now they're doing the same thing. And like, you're just not in that position to be able to do that. So don't do it. Like, it's stupid to ask people to do that. I feel I would never ask anybody to do that if I was at a, at a, at a publication. Unfortunately, yeah. I've only had a few <coughs> instances excuse me, where somebody asked me to do that, and I was just like, nah, fuck this shit. It's so strange because people value creative stuff on the internet so strangely, maybe because we can just access anything online for free that you assume the actual value of it is lower than it is. If there's ever, I mean, you, ha- you must have art and stuff for, I mean, your basketball book coming up, there's like illustrations and stuff like that. Um, a lot of people just assume that stuff is free or cheap, but it's not, because like creative work, like if you do cool shit, you should get paid for it. Uh, and there is this weird sense that, like you mentioned before, that person you're talking to, they have to like earn it after a certain months to, in order to earn that pay, in order to actually earn the right to get paid. And uh, it, again, it was weird for me early on because certain places I pitched to, a CBS site named GameSpot, and then there was IGN, you needed clips, you needed certain things, and you didn't know how to do it. But uh, in that case, when someone's younger, do you think Medium is the best way to do it? To just kind of have your own blog? Like, how do you think you should do that if you do need clips i think if you if you need clips which you will at some places um yeah you can write a thing for yourself and just post it on medium just to show the people that you know what you're doing like let's say you you're trying to get in a game and you want to pitch your local paper and you see that they cover whatever they cover high school basketball so 
if that, if I was in that spot right now, yeah, that's what I would do. I would write a thing, a game recap or whatever sort of angle I could come up with about a, a high school basketball game and then pitch them and say, this is an example. Um, cause once you get started doing that, writing for free at a place, like it's hard to step away from it because then you feel scared or nervous that you're not going to have this, whatever little platform it is that they're offering you. You're not going to have it anymore. And it's, I mean, I get how people get, get sucked in that, especially in the beginning, especially if it's all brand new to you because people will just tell you whatever they want to tell you to get you to do the stuff they need you to do. Yeah. That's, that's how I would approach it if I was starting out again today. Yeah, and in terms of if you were starting out again today, I feel like there's two frames of mind very often when you're when you are a freelancer. You're either super focused on I'm the sports guy, like I cover one sport, maybe basketball or football or something like that. But for you, I mean, you cover pop culture, you cover sports, music, movies. You could talk about you know the Spurs game on a Wednesday, and then Thursday you're talking about which is the best Fast and Furious movie. So was your goal early on to kind of have that spread shot approach to have a, a lot, a little bit of maybe a lot of information about a lot of different things so you can get your work picked up at different places or just end up like that because you wrote for places like Grantland and The Ringer that allowed you to do that? It just ended up that way. None of the stuff that I've done so far was stuff that I had like planned for in year years earlier. It just, I just sort of follow my feet right now. Same thing with the books or whatever else happens. Like I didn't plan for that stuff. So with, with, uh, again, with that, the situation you're talking about, I started out and I figured out pretty quickly that it was harder for me if I was pitching a bunch of different ideas versus if I was just pitching one thing all the time, uh, one subject all the time. So like when I started out, I got, I got into the press. This was after like a, a couple of weeks or maybe a couple of months of doing with the high school papers and, and all this junk. Uh, but I got into the Houston press because I saw that they... I realized they were covering music, <clears throat> but they weren't, for some reason, they weren't covering a lot of rap music. And I, I thought that was strange because Houston is a rap city. So I just started pitching them rap story after rap story after rap story about local, you know, the, about Houston rap that was happening. And it, again, this wasn't a, a subject that I was super familiar with. I just figured I would learn all of this stuff, uh, figured out. And so I just kept doing that. And I did that for like, Three or four years, I was just always pitching Houston rap stuff. I was trying to build myself up to be the Houston rap guy yeah. because it was easier. I saw that it was easier to get an assignment if a, a rap thing happened and I could email them quickly like, okay, this album's coming out or this thing happened over here. Like, may I write about it? And they understood at that point, like, okay, he already has the information. He's done this before. Let's let him go. So I did that for three or four years at the Houston Press and, and sort of tried to build my name up around that. And then... It became much easier for me to pitch other places. Like the first thing I wrote for Complex was about Houston rap. The first thing I wrote for MTV was about Houston rap. The thing that I wrote, it was like a little tiny thing for Rolling Stone was about Houston rap. Like I was using that to get in where I needed to get in. And then once I would get there and I had a relationship with an editor, then I would start to spread it out a little bit and say, okay, well, I've done three or four Houston rap things. Like how about this other rap thing? How about this Drake thing or how about this Kanye thing? And then after I, then I became like a rap guy. Then I was like, okay, what about this basketball thing? Can I get over here? And it just kept trying to like, you just sort of grow it out slowly, yeah. like a fucking, like a bush, just spread it out. <laughs> and, uh, you know, hopefully you, you get to do that, that stuff. That was just, it wasn't the thing I was trying to do, but I figured it out and 
So that's what I did. Because local papers aren't as big as they used to be and because, you know, websites are so global, do you think there's still value in doing it in that way in terms of maybe covering your beat in your area? If you're a Houston guy, if you're a Cali guy, like where there's maybe an interesting music scene, food scene, sports scene that you have that kind of boots on the ground opinion that other people don't have. Do you think there's a way to kind of carve out your niche because you have the background of your area? Yeah, 100%. Like that's... You have to use whatever advantages you can get. And if you're in a, a city, then that city has some sort of culture going on. Like, write about that. Just go that way. You can't, you can't be the guy who, if you're the brand new person showing up, you can't just take over whatever big beat it is that you want to cover. Let's say you want to write about the Warrior Spurs series. So you want to pitch the ringer about that. Why would they ever choose you to write about that? over somebody like Kevin O'Connor or, or, or John or Chris Ryan. Like there's just no reason for them to do that. So <clears throat> you build yourself up the, the best way that you can. And then once you've done that, then you can wiggle your way into these, into these other spots. That's, that's just one of the little tricks you've got to do to get there. Yeah. The, the, why would they pick up your thing is something that I, when I was early on, I struggled with it. Cause I thought like, Oh, you know, I'll just throw some clips over and I'll, you know, maybe they'll like enough of what I do and they'll hire me for a piece instead of actually thinking about what makes what I do unique to everyone else. Uh, mm-hmm. You did mention, I think it was over Twitter where you had you posted a kind of about your rates and how you charge people for freelance work. Cause you did kind of, I think it was $50 an hour or something to that effect when you were freelancing, which for me, when I was working for CBS and IGN, I was doing, it was like a flat fee based on whatever they kind of said it was. Uh, how difficult was it to actually negotiate your freelance pay early on? Because as we talked about before, it's hard to get people to pay you for creative stuff sometimes, especially on the internet. Did you have to really push people to get checks? Did you ever get into long email exchanges about your exact rate? Uh, what was the actual payment process like early on? Uh, early on, it was, that was a situation where I, okay, so the thing you're talking about was I, I wanted to approach it as an hourly thing because, again, I was working full time. I knew I only had X amount of hours every week to write, and I knew I had a certain money amount I wanted to make each month. So it was just a matter of calculating the amount of hours I had and the amount of money I wanted to make and figuring out what sort of rate I should be trying to get. And this was usually not a thing where I had to explain it to an editor. It was more a situation where I had this in my pocket mm-hmm. and when they showed up with an assignment or when I got in, when I, I got a green light, then I would know whether or not to take the assignment based on what it paid. Because yeah, most, most places, especially in the beginning when you're starting out, they're not going to negotiate with you. They're going to say, okay, we pay $20 for this blog post and we pay $150 for this print piece, or we paid $75 for this thing. And it's just a matter of you figuring out, okay, how long is it going to take me to write this thing versus how much are they going to pay me? So if I'm doing a a $20 blog post and it's going to take, I I figure it's going to take me four hours, and that means I'm getting paid $5 an hour to write this thing. And I don't want to do that then. But if they're going to, if it's going to take me one hour, well then, okay, cool. I'm making $20 an hour, which that's a little bit, a little bit better. Yeah. So <clears throat> in the beginning, I had it set up to where I said, okay, I, I'm trying to make $500 this month freelance writing. If I can do that, then that would be great. So anytime an assignment came to me, I said, well, 
will this assignment help me get to that $500 in the amount of time that I have? And if it did, then I would take it. And if it wouldn't, then I did it. And then the, <clears throat> the further along I got, the the higher I would make that rate. Okay, now I want to make $1,000 a month. Now I want to make $1,500 a month. Now I'm going to make $2,000 a month. So the hourly rate would just keep going up. And it became easier for me to say no to things if I knew exactly what number I wanted to hit versus exactly how much time I, I had to work on the the thing. Does that make sense? Am yeah, I it totally that? makes oh. sense. Okay. Yeah, it, it's like it's everyone does it differently. I've never really heard of that way, but I think it's a smart way to handle it. When when you were freelancing like that, was there did it help when you had to hustle for checks like that? Because right now, of course, you're still hustling, you're <clears> still <throat> working all the time for the ringer. But mm -hmm. back then, it's like if I don't put whatever I put into this is what I'm going to get out of it. If I don't put a lot into this, I'm not going to make this money to you know support what I need to be supporting. Did that actually make you write better or worse? Like does it does that really matter in terms of how you work that? level of pressure on you <clears throat> it it definitely helps it, it, it was helpful helpful to me because i knew if i didn't write a thing then i wasn't going to get a check and if i wasn't going to get a check then i wasn't going to make the amount i needed and if i wasn't going to make the amount i needed then a bill wasn't going to get paid yeah. so that yeah that was that was helpful and again I'm, I'm saying this it's easy for me to explain this now and make it sound like this was a fast process i didn't go from making zero dollars to $2,000 a month over the course of a few months. This was like two and a half years. It took me to get to $2,000 a month. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, it, it, it's a slow thing and you have to figure out all of the, the pieces as you're going along. But yeah, it's definitely, for me, it was very helpful to have a set goal in my head, an amount of money I needed because it's just, it's easier to work towards something. Yeah. If I just sit back and look at, a thing that I have to, like if I'm, I'm doing a book and if I just sit back and look at <clears throat> the whole entire book all at once, it's fucking terrifying. Mm. It feels to me like you're just standing in front of the ocean and that's, and you're trying to figure out how to get to the other side with nothing else. But if I take just a little tiny piece of the book and I say, okay, by the end of this week, I'm going to have this, this outline done. And by the end of this next week, I'm going to have the, the first part of this chapter written. Like if you break it up into chunks like that, it's helpful. So it's the same thing with money. It's impossible for me to just be like, I need to make a lot of money, so I'm going to go to work. But if I say, well, I need to make $200 this week, then it's easier for me to pitch things because I know, am I getting closer to that $200? And if I get there, yay, I get to celebrate. And if not, then I feel like like I failed. So yeah, yeah it, it, it was helpful for me. It's super easy to get overwhelmed, I think, if you don't do it like that. If you just mm -hmm. like look at it as like, oh, I need this huge amount of money. It's now the first of the month. What, where do I even start? Uh, and you did mention it was a slow process. It wasn't just all at once. Uh, not to have you call out other editors, but did you have a specific editor maybe early on because you went from, you know, eighth grade science teacher to now I'm writing for major sites after a few years? Did you have an editor that really stuck out in your mind in terms of this person made me who I am today in terms of now I get to write for the ringer? Now I'm writing this basketball book. Was there one who, maybe even two, that stick out where you're like, holy shit, now I actually understand how to write? There were several, yeah, definitely. Uh, the two that I had at the Houston Press, Chris Cray and, and Margaret Downing, they were really the first two who were actively trying to make me a better writer. Before then, when you're writing at those smaller places, at like the, the little local high school paper type situations, 
the editors there are more just concerned with filling whatever space they need to, to fill in, in my experience. So there was not a lot of like a, a lot of actual editing going on. They would make whatever changes they wanted and, and then you were done. But when I got to the press, that was the first time where an editor was like, okay, here's why this is wrong. And here's how I would try to fix it. Or here's what this should look like. Here's what the structure of this story should be. Here's how you get information from uh, City Hall. Here's how you interview a person. Here's how you set up. And, you know, they were like teaching me the reporting type stuff, structure type stuff. Um, so that's why I, I just really, anytime anybody asked me who was influential, those two really spent a lot of time and a lot of effort into teaching me this stuff because I didn't have any of that experience at all. And they didn't, they didn't care. They were just like, well, you're a hard worker, so we're going to make this work. And so those were the first two. And then after that, um, I had another editor named Ben Westhoff, who he's a, <clears throat> like a writer buddy of mine now. He, he does books and stuff too. I had him very early on. He was working at LA Weekly and he brought me over there. And then he had some, like he was also giving me little pieces of advice that were very helpful. He was a guy who explained to me when you're writing a, a piece, all of the sentences in that piece should help you arrive to whatever point it is you're trying to make. Yeah. And I remember he took a thing that I'd written that I thought was very good and I was very proud of it. And he's like, yeah, you've got a good ending point and there's a decent structure here, but all of this little stuff here is extra. There's no reason for this part to be here or this part to be here because it's not doing anything except taking up space. And it just sort of blew my mind because I never thought about it like that. Yeah, really. Every sentence, just think on it like a, a river flowing toward a thing. Every sentence should be helping you get here. And if it's not, cut it out. Um, so he sticks out in my head. Uh, <clears throat> there's another one named Lawrence Schlossman who he was one of the first people who just sort of let me run free. Mm. It's like, okay, I've seen the stuff that you've, that you've been doing. And I think if I just give you some space, you're going to do some cool stuff. So here you go. And he was, a. Uh, this was at this website called four pins and it was, it was really fun to, to write there. He gave me like a weekly thing to do. It just, he basically said, you have one thing to do every, do every week, write whatever you want. And then if I got a little too wild, he would pull me back in and say, okay, this is, this didn't work. This worked. Try more like this. Um, and then of course the people that, when I got to, to Grantland, Grantland was really the moment where I felt like I could do it full time. Yeah. Before then, it just always felt part time. And then at Grantland, they were super, <clears throat> super supportive, super encouraging and were really pushing to be like, this is a thing that you can do well, full time. I want to see what happens if we put all your energy into this. How can we make this happen? Like those are the sorts of conversations we were we were having there. So and the the editors there it was like uh, Dan Fearman and Sean Fennessy and uh, Chris Ryan, Mark Lasanti, like these these sorts of people. Uh, Juliet Littman. They were just really. Those were the ones who I I, I felt like. When I got to that spot, that's where everything sort of changed for me as far as the the outlook I had on what a career could or couldn't be. Did it take you a while to get into the right mindset to take this? <clears throat> because early on, you kind of have that. You mentioned you thought that one piece was good, and then you, the the editor you had was like, all right, let's remove this, let's remove this. It's easy to have that immediate kind of fuck you reaction when you put a lot of time into something and think it's good. Did it take you a while to get in the mind space of being able to take edits and actually adjust your articles or was it right away you were like, you know, I, I'm, take out whatever you want. Let's, let's get the best article possible. I, it was always, 
my feelings were always hurt when a thing got changed <laughs> or, or cut out. That's just, that's the way it works. But I also understood that I, number one, I knew if I argued with these people, it seemed less likely that they would give me work. Like, I always felt like my job was to try to just make their job as easy as possible. And if I could do that, then it would be better for me. Because in my experience, most editors would rather work with a writer who's like, you're a good writer, not a great writer, but you work very hard versus you're an exceptional writer, but I can't count on you. Like I want to, I want it to be a thing where if an editor assigns me a thing, they know it's going to be done and they don't have to worry about that at all. So the edits, they bothered me definitely, um, just on a personal level, but professionally, I understood don't argue with them because it, it won't help you in the long term. And also, there's there's no editor out there who's like editing a piece to make it worse. Like that's not what they're trying <laughs> to do. It's not on purpose. <clears throat> so that didn't you know didn't make any sense to like fuss with them about it. They're trying to make the piece as as good as they can. And your job, my job, I felt was to like look at the edits that they make and try not to make that same mistake again. And you know you know what I'm saying. Yeah, I think that's one of the biggest ones is actually <clears throat> looking at the edits afterward and figuring out what was changed instead of just accepting every edit. Because you should accept the edits, like you said. You're not arguing, even if you might, you know, cry on the inside when they take out this really great sentence, at least the sentence you thought was great. But mm-hmm. the best thing I've ever done is just look back at that stuff and be like, all right, why was this changed and how can I adjust so that I don't continue to do this? I'll continue to have sentences that have somehow like three semicolons in it and it's really should be a paragraph or something like that. Like that was one of the biggest things for me. It's a, it's, it's a tricky process when you're working through it because it's a, writing is a very personal thing and it's weird to like make a thing and give it to someone and then they pick it apart. Like it's just not a cool feeling, but yeah, that's just how it goes. And, and the, what's always great is if you get paired up with an editor who's sort of on the same wavelength that you are, and they're able to take a take a thing you wrote and and make it better. That's like the best feeling in the world. We the the editor that I work with most often at the Ringers is a guy named Sam, and I always when I'm writing a piece, I can always feel the parts that he's going to cut or or take out, mm. and I'm like, well, he's gonna definitely cut this piece out. Let me let me watch and see what happens. And, and yeah, it, it usually happens. But he's he's very good about like taking the things that I'm I'm writing and making them a better version of me writing it versus like he's not he's never trying to insert himself into the piece yeah he's just making it cleaner and smoother and smarter and if you get paired up with somebody like that like that's that's a cool that's a cool process anytime he makes an edit it, that one doesn't hurt my feelings because he's usually making it better for me yeah, that collaborative nature between like you as a writer and an editor that you are really close to and understands your writing, understands your strengths and weaknesses is so mm-hmm. awesome to actually find. I had a college roommate of mine who is a fantastic editor. I've been working with him for years. And like that's the kind of thing that, like you said, it doesn't feel like he's trying to change it and make it his. He's trying to enhance what I do well and minimize the bullshit I put in there. And that's usually yeah. where I get, like stuff where I'm like, oh, wow, this is way better than I ever thought it could be. And also it's mine and not someone else's. Uh, which is some of the coolest editing moments. Do you still have, holy shit, I write for Bill Simmons moments. Do you still have these times where you, you know, when I first called you, the first thing I mentioned is I looked at your Wikipedia page, which not that many people have. And like, 
when you said yes to doing this, I was super excited, and I was like, if he says even 2 p.m. Eastern on Monday, I will take a half day so we can have this conversation. <laughs> Do you still have these kind of – because you seem like someone who you super appreciate the situation you're in just based off your Twitter. Do you kind of have these moments where you take a step back and go like, God damn, things are going well? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> every Every single day that I wake up is – and I don't have an email that says I'm fired – that's what I, that's what I feel. Be, because again, none of this stuff was, was stuff I had originally set out to do. So it's just, I'm watching it happen and it's, it's great, man. It's very cool to be at a spot like, like the ringer, being able to write about stuff that I, I like or care about and feeling valuable. Yeah. And, uh, I made a, a, a comment not that long ago on Twitter, somebody was asking me some questions about, did you start out writing this or that, blah, blah, blah. And uh, I was mentioning to them how <clears throat> I get emails all the time or, or a phone call or a tweet or somebody will be telling me like, yo, I want to write about what I want to write about at a place where I care about. And I mentioned like, well, of course you do because that's like the top, the top level. And when I'm saying the top level, I mean, for me, a top level place to be in professionally is one where you can write about stuff that, that you care about at a place where you feel not only valuable, but like you're going to be challenged and, and pushed to be a little bit better. And also in addition to those two things, you get paid money. Like <laughs> they're just not, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like if you've got those three situations going on, you're writing about stuff you care about at a place you care about and you can take care of your family while doing that. Like that's to me, an ideal spot to be in. So to wake up each morning <coughs> and know that at the moment I have that, yeah, like I don't understand how you can not be appreciative. They could fire me today and it would just be like, well, I had those, I had that time and that time was great and I'm really thankful for it. When Grantland went away, did you get an email early that you would be a part of the ringer or whatever, you know, that site would have been called or did the ringer go up and you were ch chomping at the bit to get back in there? Uh, no, when the, when Grantland shut down, it was a situation where, like, they let everybody know we were all on a, a phone call and they said, okay, this is going to happen. And we just wanted to let y'all know. And also, you're going to be, anybody who's under contract, we're going to honor your contract. So, it just so happened to where I signed a, a part-time contract first and then I did a full-time contract in July of 2015. That's when I left teaching. And I, so I signed a full-time contract then. And then that October, which is, you know, which is July, August, like three months later is when Grantland shut down. I was still in a contract through the next July because you do, I had arranged a, a one year long contract. So they said, well, we're, you know, you're not going to write anymore, but we're going to pay you through July if you want to just stick around and collect your checks. <coughs> So it was just like, well, yeah, I think I'll do that. I think I'll collect this check and not have to, to write anything. Um, so there was, you know, that, that's what I had going on, uh, for those several months, eight months or so. And I was watching the ringer stuff happen and, you know, you're sort of hoping you get a phone call or an email or whatever. Um, but there was, yeah, that's, that's where I was. I was just hoping I got that phone call. And then when it, when it came, I was very excited. Yeah. Last thing I want to touch on is your, books because you mentioned before it's kind of at the start daunting to see you know i have this book to write i'm currently staring at a blank page 
how do I start? It's kind of chunking that out to make sure you get to where you want to be. With this uh, new illustrated basketball book, is it any easier? Like, have you learned a lot from writing, uh, was it two books before? I know you had the rap book. Was there one right before that? There was a coloring book that I did with uh, with Bun B. We did a rap coloring book. <laughs> oh, but yeah. But that one was... That one was not, that one wasn't hard. That one was a situation where I was just drawing some pictures and I was, the, the book is, was like 40 something pages, maybe 40 right. pages. I, I drew all of the, the pages over spring break when I was off of work. I was just sit, I just sat there and worked full time on that. Got those all done in a week. And then I spent the whole rest of the time <clears throat> trying to get, you have to get a, this form signed, a likeness form. Signed by anybody who was in the book saying, we give you permission to use our likeness, my likeness. Um, so that was the only sucky part of that book. That took like six months of emailing oh, people and faxing people and following up and following up. Like that part was sucky. The actual working on the book, easy breezy. With a rap year book, when I didn't have to do all that stuff, I was anticipating it was going to move smoothly and quickly. But yeah, it's way more work than you're, than you're anticipating. Just like, it's so much research. It's so much planning. It's so much plotting, especially when you've got a book with a bunch of art in it because you want it to, I have a picture in my head of what I want it to look like. And that might not be what the publishers want it to look like. So we've, we're sort of battling through, through that process. Um, with the, uh, with the basketball book, I had a pretty good sense of what it was going to take to write it. I was really surprised when I did the rap year book with the basketball one. I still had a, a sense of what it was going to be, but it didn't make it any easier it just made it like you know that this is coming you know you swam across the ocean once you don't make it easier to do the second time you just know what's going to happen the second time yeah so. i was going to say it has to be like are, are you like do you get like halfway <laughs> through and suddenly you're like god damn i'm just so excited to be done with this it's kind of like when you start a run you're like all right, i know exactly how far i need to run i know how to use my legs i can do this and then halfway through you're like i hate everyone this is the worst thing ever i just want a donut and that's kind of how it is halfway through a book that's exactly how it is. You get into it and you're really excited in the beginning and you start working on it. And then, yeah, you get a few chapters in and you realize you st- you have to write still 85,000 words or some shit like that. Oh, God. You've, you've got that left and it's very, you know what it feels like? I, there was this time when I was, uh, I was like 10 or 11 years old and we were at the lake and we were, we had rented a little, one of those little paddle boats, me and my sisters and my cousin. And we paddled that bitch all the way out to like the middle of the lake. And we were really happy to be out there. And I said, you know what? I'm going to fucking swim back to the shore. <laughs> That's what I'm going to do. And <clears throat> my cousin, who was maybe like two or three years younger than me, uh, he's like, yeah, I'm going to swim with you. And we didn't have life jackets or anything because when you're a kid, you don't know any better. And our parents didn't, whatever. This was like the, this was the early nineties. You didn't, there were no rules back then. So we jumped out of the, the boat and the paddle boat and started swimming to the shore and you we got like halfway there i remember there was a point right around halfway where i realized like i'm not gonna make it and i'm looking at the shore and i'm looking at the boat and we're right in the middle of both of them and it's just like well fuck like this is where i this is where i die and i could feel myself about to start crying like that's what the book feels like in the middle of it you can't you're not close to the end you're too you can't go back because what's the point then? You've got to just power through that shit. And, uh, that's what, yeah, that's definitely what the book feels like when you're, when you're working on it. Freelance writing is way, 
way more enjoyable than <laughs> than book writing. Yeah, I'm, I've always wanted to write one. I'm terrified of the prospect because I think I have the exact same mindset as you. When is it actually coming out? How close are you to being done? Uh, I'll be done with it this week, matter of fact. Oh, shit. 100% done with it. Yeah, we're we're going through the final edits and the, the final design pieces and arguing about this or arguing about that, but it should be this <coughs> it should be this week and then and then I just wait for it to come out in uh, October. That's amazing. Congrats. Uh so I I was going to ask like what can we look forward from you? I mean, the book is coming out, but you have NBA Wednesdays. Uh you are writing for the Ringer all the time. You still don't have a podcast thanks to Tate Frazier, but Correct. What can people expect from you in the next coming weeks? I know you're probably intently watching this Spurs Warriors series, but uh, any other features or anything coming out that you could talk about? No, man, I'm just going to do the stuff that I do. I try to write three things a week. I'm going to keep trying to do that. Like Writing is a very difficult job to do. Uh, there's a lot of like figuring shit out. So writing three things a week for me is, I'm sure there are people who write more than that, but that's, that's difficult for me to do. So it's a very much a full-time situation when you, you've got to, you've got to do that. Fortunately, I don't have to chase down invoices anymore. That's the, <laughs> that's the best part of, of being a, of, of having like a contract somewhere. Yeah. And I remember that, that, that's what they, that's what one of the guys told me when I started at Grantland. He was like, just come work here because then you don't have to. I didn't realize how nice that is to not have to send invoices or follow up on invoices until I got over there. Oh, and your taxes or, are entirely different too. Like you taxes just so much are different. Easier. Yeah, it was a. Uh, oh man, I remember when I I got that letter from the IRS the first time <laughs> after I'd been freelancing for two or three years, and they said, "Hey, you owe us seven thousand dollars." I was like, "Oh fuck, I'm going to prison." <laughs> like I didn't I didn't know any of that stuff, man. You just figure it out as you go. Yeah, Would shout you? out to everybody who's chasing down. Everybody who freelances ends up having to chase a check down from some piece of shit who won't pay them. Yeah. Eventually, it's just part of it. It's impossible to avoid. And yeah, that first tax <clears> time <throat> after freelancing, you're suddenly like, wait, I have to pay what? Like, what percentage mm-hmm. of my check? Especially when you don't put money away and you're just spending it on stupid shit. Like, yeah, I, as someone who's now full time and only has like one contract spot, it's, it's night and day. It's so great to not have to chase all that stuff down. Uh, Shay, I wish the Spurs the best of luck over this series. I'm a Cavs fan, and I would like nothing more than to have the Cavs meet the Spurs uh, in the finals this year. And thank you so much for doing this. Again, it, I was super looking forward to it as soon as you said you would do it. And I, uh, it was great talking to you about kind of the ins and outs of your freelance stuff. Hi, homie. All right. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Hopefully tune back in for the next episode of the 1099.